0: give you uh, for perhaps not seeing the 2004 (laughs) comedy Envy, (coughs) starring Jack Black and Ben Stiller. In the movie, two low-level factory employees are always dreaming of what else they could be doing with their humdrum lives. One of them, played by Jack Black, is routinely coming up with outlandish business ideas, and he proposes a product called VapoRiser, which somehow makes dog waste disappear. Now, his friend, Ben Stiller, rejects the idea as ridiculous and is confused and jealous when Jack Black successfully develops the product in his garage. Overnight, he becomes a millionaire, while Ben Stiller is left on the outside looking in green with envy and filled with regret for missing his moment. If you can believe this, the movie bombed at the theaters. <laughs> it made like $12 million dollars. It's uh, got terrible reviews. It scored 8% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, It is very important for you to know that I did not waste any of my life actually watching this movie. I read the uh, plot summary on Wikipedia. I tell you that to maintain my personal and professional credibility, if I even have any left after having uttered the word vaporizer. Nonetheless, the movie is another play on a very common human experience, that of envy. All of us know what envy feels like. Uh, we've all struggled while watching friends, family, coworkers, often less deserving people, succeed where we have failed. Whether they get a promotion and we don't. Whether they lose weight and we can't. Whether they get the girl and we swing and miss. Envy is a universal experience. It drives us into all sorts of negative thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Now, envy needn't be so negative, though. In fact, psychologists actually distinguish between two types of envy. They distinguish between benign envy and malicious envy. Uh, Malicious envy is the sort of envy that makes you do mean things to the person that you're envious of. Uh, benign envy is the sort of envy that motivates you to make better choices, to maybe succeed where previously you have failed. Even Ben Stiller struggles with malicious envy for a while until he decides to develop his own business product leading to a happy ending. That's at least according to Wikipedia. Now this is actually the situation that we find described in our Bible passage for the morning, which comes from the book of Romans. If you're just joining us, we are in an extended study of Paul's letter to the Romans in a series that we are currently calling Anguish and Hope. Now, if you don't know, Romans is a very big important book in the New Testament. It was written by a guy named Paul. Paul is a first century Jewish Christian missionary and an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. After converting, he traveled around the Mediterranean, starting planting churches. He really wanted to visit the Christian church in the city of Rome, so he writes them a nice long letter in which he introduces himself and summarizes for them the message of Christianity, the message that anybody can be saved if only they have faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the middle section of Romans, uh, Paul tackles the very difficult topic of Israelites' rejection of the gospel. Paul himself is Jewish, and it causes him great anguish to see his religious family, the Jews, Israel, reject the message of salvation through faith in Christ, but he still has hope that God is not yet done with Israel. And that's why this series is called Anguish and Hope. So, with that introduction, let me go ahead and read to you our passage for the morning. It's Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 16. Again, I ask. Did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will, will their fullness bring? I'm talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead. If the part of the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Now in this section of Romans, Paul is addressing, like we've mentioned, the apparent problem of ancient Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Israel was God's special chosen people, and it was through ancient Israel that God brought the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. The only problem, though, is that for the most part, ancient Israelites rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They wanted a different Messiah. Frankly, they wanted a tougher Messiah, not some silly Messiah who would do dumb little things like forgive enemies and suffer and die on a cross. Not that kind of Messiah. Now, the situation of Israel's rejection of the Messiah, it raises lots of questions, lots of problems, which Paul actually addresses in this section in Romans. And one of these problems is whether the game is over for Israel. So having rejected the Messiah, are they lost forever? If so, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy because Israel has been God's special chosen people for thousands of years. God raised them from infancy, cradling them in the promised land, loving them through their rebellious teenage years, enduring with them in every way that a parent would so that he could use them to bring salvation to the world. So with their rejection of Jesus, is God through with his people? I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but this is one of the questions we're going to talk about this morning. Is there anything we could do so bad that we're beyond recovery? Can any of us do anything so terrible that God's through with us? Well, that's the question that Paul is here addressing in this section. Did Israel stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Can any of us ever fall beyond recovery? Paul's answer to this question is an emphatic, not at all. No one, not even Israel, stumbles beyond recovery. Nobody is so far gone that God cannot catch them up. Even with their rejection of Jesus, God still has a plan to redeem his people. We'll call it God's Save Israel Plan. Now, what exactly is God's Save Israel Plan? Well, Paul describes that plan in this section in three steps. The first step is, number one, to take the gospel to the Gentiles in the wake of Israel's rejection. As Paul writes, did they stumble beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Remember that in the Bible, there are basically two types of people, right? There is Israel, and there is everybody else. Israel and everybody else, or the nations which is what the word Gentiles means. There's Israel and the Gentiles. Jesus came as a Jew to save his people, the people of Israel, who were chosen by God. They had been primed to receive the Messiah. And when Jesus came, he did save some. He saved some of his friends, his family, uh, the disciples, Paul, and many others, After being saved, these Jewish believers, they headed out into the Roman Empire, visiting all sorts of Jewish synagogues and telling all their Jewish brothers and sisters that the Messiah had arrived. And they picked up a few followers, but, like we've said, for the most part, the message of the apostles, for the most part, fell on deaf ears in Jewish synagogues. At which point, Jesus' apostles didn't skip a beat. What did they do? They pivoted and they preach the message to the nations, to everybody else, to the Gentiles. We even have a record of the moment when the Apostle Paul decides, hey, I'm gonna try something else now. The moment happens in the book of Luke, in the book of Acts, written by Luke, in the ancient city of Corinth, where Paul has actually set up his missionary shop. As Luke records, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest. Apparently that's what you did back then if you wanted to protest something. Shake out your clothes. And he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibilities. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. He had had enough of Israel's obstinacy He was going to try something else. And as history tells us, the Gentiles actually received the message of Jesus very eagerly. They weren't as offended by the notion of a suffering Messiah as much as Israel was. So while tragic, Israel's rejection of Christ led to an explosion of outreach that actually transformed the Roman Empire and then the world. As Paul puts it in Romans, Israel's transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles. But that's only the first step of God's Save Israel plan. So far, it just involves the rejection of Israel. So where does Israel come into this? The second move, the second step is arouse Israel's envy by blessing the Gentiles. Again, Paul, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. And as he says later, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. So God's decision to take the gospel to the Gentiles wasn't just to bless the nations, but to arouse his people, Israel, to benign envy. Now, how would that work exactly? Well, there's power in the gospel to change lives. With acceptance of Jesus comes blessing, hope, joy, peace, love, power, healing, forgiveness. Paul believed that when the power of Jesus took root in Gentile communities, Israel would see and be jealous. They will think, "Hey, that blessing should have been ours. That love, that joy, that peace, that forgiveness, that salvation, that should have been ours. That was the gift of salvation that we were waiting for, and Paul believes at least they will finally come to faith." We have actually seen this happen over the centuries. Uh, In my small group last semester, we read about the story of Louis Lapides. Louis is actually a Jewish man who grew jealous that his Christian friends had all the blessings of love, joy, peace, and knowledge. Blessings which flowed from a Jewish savior they worshiped who was supposed to be his Messiah. So after researching the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah and concluding that Jesus was that Messiah, this Jewish man converted and now actually is a pastor to Israel. He leads Beth Ariel Fellowship in Sherman Oaks, California, a church that reaches out to Israelites with the good news of Jesus Christ, the Jewish Messiah's arrival. So that's moves one and two of God's plan to save Israel, preach the gospel to the Gentiles in order to arouse Israel's envy leading to their salvation, but there's a third move, third step. It's to bless the whole world. With many of the Gentiles saved, and with many in Israel saved, the whole world will be blessed and the power of God's salvation will be even more obvious to everyone who still lies outside his grace. As he says, if Israel's transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater will their fullness bring? In other words, the joining together of Jews and Gentiles in Christ will demonstrate the power and the love of God in a way that the world has a hard time denying. So that's God's save Israel plan, which also happens to be his save the world plan. First, use Israel's rejection to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Second, arouse the benign Israel uh, envy of Israel by blessing the Gentiles with the power of Jesus. And third, bless the whole world through the joint fellowship of Jew and Gentile together. Let me give you an illustration just to make sure we all understand the plan as Paul has described it here. And I hate to be trite, but I thought of this passage when I was indulging in one of my guilty entertain- entertainment pleasures, parks and recreation. I don't know if there's any other Parks and Recreation fans here this morning. It's a tremendous show. Uh, Parks and Rec is, it's a mockumentary sitcom uh, about a group of small town government employees in Pawnee, Indiana. Uh, In one of the episodes, uh, one of the employees, Jerry, he throws a Christmas party and he invites his coworkers from the department, Tom, Andy, Donna, and April. Now, Jerry's coworkers really don't like Jerry and they are too cool to come to his party, so they skip it. And they plan their own function without Jerry. Unfazed, Jerry invites everyone else in the department to the party, and they have a grand time. Tom and gang actually drive by the party just to make fun of it. And as they're driving by, they see Jerry's street packed with cars. They get out of the car, and inside Jerry's house is a holiday merriment, warmth, and cheer. They, meanwhile, having turned down the invite, are stuck outside in the cold, watching the festivities through the window, window, flush with envy, at the great holiday party they are missing. Eventually, they are welcomed in, at which point the party can really start because everyone is finally present, even those who turned down the invitation in the first place. So just to spell out the points of contact here, Let Jerry be God. (laughs) I wonder if anybody in the history of the universe has ever compared Jerry from Parks and Recreation to God. Let Jerry be God, who is throwing the party. Let the Christmas Evite be the invitation to believe in Jesus, who died for our sins. Let Tom, Andy, April, and Donna be Israel, who reject the invitation. Let everyone else who instead gets invited and attends the party be the believing Gentiles, let standing in the snow, looking through the window, feeling envious be the regret of missing the Messiah, and let the joining together of all the parks and rec employees be the fellowship of Jews and Gentiles in a demonstration of God's love and power to bring the whole office together. Roughly, that's what Paul is describing here. So that's the passage. That's what Paul is describing. Now you understand what the Bible is saying, but understanding the Bible is one thing, now we have to apply it. So what does God's Save Israel plan mean for us? Well, I have just a few minutes left, but I actually see three quick lessons this passage has for you and I. First, no one stumbles beyond recovery. No one stumbles beyond recovery. Even though many in Israel had definitively and categorically rejected the gospel, Paul states emphatically that they were not so far gone that they were beyond hope. This was true for Israel, and it's true for us. Every now and then, we stumble in life. We trip up bad. We face plant. We make a series of mistakes. We get into a bad habit. We tell God, no. We sin the big one. We say something we regret to a loved one, something we can't take back, and with our face in the dirt, we look up and we see God's plan, we see God's people, we see the field miles ahead of us, and we might feel like we're too far behind, God has moved on, our sin is too great, we missed our chance. But it's not too late. No one stumbles beyond recovery. God has a plan to get us to heaven across the finish line, no matter how far behind you think you are. Now, that doesn't mean that you can sit in the mud. We do have to get up and keep running. One of my favorite scenes from any movie I watched when I was a kid was from the old British movie, Chariots of Fire. It's from 1981, if anybody remembers this film. In the movie, Scottish sprinter Eric Little, he actually, he's running a race, it's a quarter, 400 meters, in a Scottish-French duel and he gets tripped up and he falls out of the race and he looks up and the field is 20 meters ahead of him. That's too far of a distance for anybody to make up uh, in such a short amount of time. Plenty of sprinters, plenty of people would have given up or they would have gotten up and phoned in the rest of the race. But heroically, Eric gets up, he grabs his heart, and he sprints back to the lead, crossing the finish line, a whisker out of the field. And this act- incident actually really happened in history. Uh, one of the observers, one of the spectators, called it the bravest quarter that he'd ever seen. No one of us can ever stumble that we are too far behind God's plan for our lives. You might have told God no a million times but it hasn't put you too far back to say yes. No sin we could commit or mistake we make disqualifies us from the race. By his grace, he has a plan to get us across the finish line, but we do have to get up, clutch our hearts, and run. You yourself might be stuck in the mud this morning You might be here but wondering if you're too far behind to be recovered. Is your sin too great? Was your no to God too emphatic? Are you too old to make up for lost time? You're not. Nobody stumbles beyond recovery. You just have to believe in Jesus and get up and keep running. That's the first point of application. No one stumbles beyond recovery. Here's the second Secondly, live such envy-inducing lives that people want what we have. Live such envy-inducing lives that people want what we have. Like we've discussed, God's plan to save Israel involved blessing the Gentiles so richly that Israel would see and believe. Or rather, that they would see, be insanely envious of what they saw. And believe. I think God still works like that. In fact, I know that he does. All over the New Testament, God tells us that one of the best ways to share the message of Jesus with the world is by letting the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus, transform our lives so much so that other people see and notice something's different and asks us how that can be. As Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to anybody who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Or as Jesus tells his disciples, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's how people are going to know, if you love one another. Or as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, in the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. This is how the gospel goes out into the world, by us living such godly lives that people can't help but notice and wonder what we got and where they can get it. I don't mean to toot our own horn, but I actually think we do this fairly well here at Rooftop. If we've grown as a church over the past few years, it might have had something to do with shrewd marketing. Might have something to do with a big building on Gravois. Might have something to do with energetic floats in parades. But I'd like to think that at the root, it's because people see God living and working in our community and they want some of that action Uh, there's a group of ladies that i run up to that i uh run into uh up at breadco every now and then for example uh this group they know that i'm the pastor of rooftop um they don't come here they've got their own parishes but i can actually tell they're a little bit envious one of them stopped me in breadco a while back and she said i drove by your church on sunday so many cars, all those people coming and going, what's going on inside that building. I said, free back rubs. (laughs) Best decision we've ever made. No, I said, God's blessing us. God's changing lives. God's giving people hope. Uh, we did a service day a couple years ago uh, here at Rooftop. Actually, we do this every year. But a few years ago, we did one, and we worked with St. Louis County to take on some local projects. And one of them was cleaning up uh, some un- ugly landscaping on Gravois, which is like all of Gravois. <laughs> um, Rooftop put together a crew, and we met with one of the government officials one of the local community service coordinators who works with service groups on the weekends, and after giving us instructions on what we were to do, he started handing out tools. Uh, <clears throat> there were more rooftoppers than there were tools, so a playful little tussle broke out between a couple rooftoppers about how, uh, who got to use the shovel. And the coordinator said under his breath to me, he said, I've never had volunteers wrestle over who gets to use the shovel. <laughs> That's how this should work the world should see us arguing over who gets to use the shovel. The world should wonder what's going on inside that building. (laughs) What's going on inside that life? People should see our lives, our love, our hope, our conviction, our holiness, our humility, our perseverance, and they should think, what is it? That could make a person like that. How do I get me some of that? And we should be ready to tell them. Well, let me tell you about Jesus. And you can hear more about him at that building. Does anybody look at you and wonder how you, a sinner, you, a sinner, you, could be living the life of hope and joy and peace that you are. Like Peter, does anybody ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have? If nobody asks, is it because you have no hope? If nobody asks, why are you such a loving person? Is it because you have no love? You can. That's available to you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Second point of application. If you want to tell the world about the love of Jesus, live such distinctive lives that you make people insanely envious about the power of the God you serve. The last point of application is this. The party doesn't start until everybody's here. The party doesn't start until everybody's here. In reading this passage, we must remember Paul's primary concern, which is the salvation of Israel. Israel was God's chosen people, his instrument of salvation for the world. Their rejection of the Messiah was a tragedy. Now, true, God had a plan and used their rejection of Christ to reach the Gentiles, but Paul still looks forward to a time in the future when Jew and Gentile worship together, and without Israel present, God's family isn't complete. Without the founding members of his nation, his people aren't complete, and they need to be there. This is what he means when he says, if the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. There's a lot of biblical literary metaphor there, but the idea is that God's family, his batch, is not whole without Gentile and Jew. The party isn't complete until the whole parks and rec department is present. God loves everyone too much to kick things off without everybody there. You know what this feels like, right? You've been in, to a party or to a function and you're reluctant to start because, you know, Bob isn't here yet. We can't start. Lucy's stuck in traffic. Or, you know, it's not the same. Grandma couldn't be here. Same thing. Our God is a communal God. He's glad that we're here, but there are others who aren't. There are others in this world, in this city, who have not responded to the message of Jesus yet. Our friends, our neighbors, our loved ones. Israel. The party of heaven can't start until they hear and receive the message. That's why we need to share it with them. That's why we're here in St. Louis, to invite people to the Christmas party. Which of your friends, your family, your neighbors aren't here yet? who are those in your life standing outside in the cold watching the festivities of heaven through the window? Invite them in. Tell them about Jesus. Let them in the front door. The family of God actually isn't complete until they're here. This is kind of, sort of what communion is about. We celebrate communion on the third week of every month here at Rooftop. Communion, in our understanding, is something that followers of Christ have been doing together for thousands of years. It is a uh, reenactment, a symbolic reenactment of what it means to be God's people. We are his family gathered around the dinner table, forgiven of our sins because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's what we remember when we take communion, when we drink from the cup. It reminds us of the blood that he shed for our sakes. When we eat from the bread, it reminds us of the body, which was broken for our sakes so that we could be forgiven. Related to our theme this morning, communion is something that we take together. It's not an individual act. It's a family meal. There's plenty of good people here this morning for this meal, but not everyone is here. The party of heaven can't really start until everybody's here. There are people not here who need to be here. People stuck in their sin. People ignoring God. People alienated from the church. You know them. I know them. So let's take communion as a chance to pray for them this morning. In fact, what I want you to do is when you come up to take communion, take two bits of bread. One for yourself and one for that friend, that relative, that coworker, whom you hope joins the party soon. Two bits of bread. One for you, one for the person you're saving a seat for. Eat them both as a reminder that this party isn't complete until that person